I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Glad to be talking to you guys. Can you can you guys hear me okay? I thought about just trying to, you know, to do this at a time when I could just be at home. Um, but I'm not sure how much less background noise there will be there. Um, there is at least one cat that's pretty noisy, but hopefully it sounds okay now. No one with no one speaking. Except yeah, it me. sounds good. Okay, good. Yeah. Do you have headphones in or earbuds? I do. I have, I have headphones on. Perfect. I try to, I try to choose the most professional looking headphones I own. Oh, good. <laughs> that's important. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish I had a, I wish I had some kind of professional looking microphone in front of me, but I, I unfortunately I don't own one. When you guys first approached me, I was hoping that that it might be the kind of situation where we're all sitting together in a studio um, with, uh, you know, with like branded cups of coffee in front of us or something. And, and yes, uh, that is the future of this show. We're just not there yet, but we'll invite yeah. you back when we get there. Oh, please do. Yeah, I'd love to be. A, I'd love to be a part of Clever 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what? It's not coffee in those mugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, right, right. No, it really sounds like my kind of podcast. Just so you know, this is fun and goofy. Don't, yeah. yeah. You will not look like a professional clown. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, we're just having, this is really lighthearted. So. I, I, uh, I applied to clown school, but didn't get in. So I had to fall back on architecture. Yeah, that's always the fallback from clown school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually. Or anyway, aerospace engineering, neuroscience. I think great. Popular things if you can't get into cloud school. Hey everyone, I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to Kevin Greenberg. Kevin is the founder and principal of Space Exploration, which sounds like he's an astronaut, 
but really he's an architect exploring interior space, not outer space. They do beautiful residential spaces and exceptionally cool boutique commercial spaces. He holds degrees from the University of Chicago and University of Texas at Austin. Before founding Brooklyn-based space exploration, he worked at firms in New York, Seattle, and Japan, and he's got some really great stories from his time yeah. in Japan. Yes, he does. He's also an active writer, teacher, and guest critic, as well as a hilarious dude. So let's listen. My name is Kevin Greenberg. I live and work in Brooklyn, New York. I'm an architect, and I do what I do because I believe that in small, mostly unnoticed ways, good design can improve people's lives. Nice. We believe that, too. All right, Kevin Greenberg, let's start at the beginning. Tell us everything. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was it like? Were you a good kid, bad kid? Uh, I'm the eldest son, or I'm the only son of my parents. Uh, I was born in, I was actually born in Biloxi, Mississippi, but didn't live there for very long. Uh, at an early age, I moved around a lot with my parents. My father's a neurologist, but he was in the Air Force at the time. So we lived in San Francisco, and then we lived in the Philippines for several years. And eventually we settled in San Antonio, Texas, where both of my parents were born and raised. And uh, we lived there basically through when I graduated from high school. So I practiced art from a very early age you know, and, and always had a strong, a strong interest in art and being an artist. What form did that take? Was that uh, drawing, painting? Was that interpretive dance? Some dance, but again, not, uh, I, I have two left feet, so it didn't, it, the dancing didn't go as well as I had hoped. So again, I had to fall back on drawing and painting. Uh, I was lucky that both of my, both my aunt and uncle, my mother's, my mother's sister and her husband were professional working artists. So in addition to whatever thin art education I got in the Texas public school system, which wasn't, um, which wasn't much, um, on the side, I had two working professionals who were enthusiastic about helping me develop as an artist. So I was, you know, constantly given interesting or, um, you know, sometimes elaborate professional art making tools that maybe some of my peers didn't have access to and instruction in how to use them. So I feel, I feel very lucky for that aspect of my development. I mean, I was, I was frequently messing around with art tools that I think maybe some of, some of my, um, some of my peers didn't, didn't have access to like, uh, you know, like an airbrush, for instance, I did a lot of airbrush painting, which I know is extremely uncool now. No, but, that's um, super cool. No, really? it's really cool. Um, but in the mid nineties, it, uh, Oh yeah, it was big. Oh yeah. And my, my uncle, my aunt's husband, he was a, uh, he was a professional illustrator and a pretty, pretty well-regarded one in San Antonio. So he had a, you know, he had a, an arsenal of, uh, of equipment that he would let me borrow. And then my first, actually my first work experience was, um, as a 15 year old, I, I was his assistant and apprentice, for several years while, you know, while I was also in high school. So, so that was a nice, you know, it was a nice look at um, what it's like to work in a creative profession at an, at an early age. Um, although I, I will also say that I think that having direct access to my aunt and uncle, who by the way, had no children and gave me kind of an unrealistic impression of what it might like, what it might be like to be a professional artist, because, you know, they were, you know, they were dual income, they had no children, they had paid off their house. And so they had a very, they had a pretty nice lifestyle. And so I just naturally believed that all artists lived basically the same type of um, comfortable lifestyle that a lawyer or a doctor might. Mm. Oh, 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 how mistaken you were. <laughs> right. So, so for me at that age, going to art school and becoming an artist, like my aunt and uncle seemed, uh, seemed like a no brainer. And I almost did that. Um, I, I very nearly went to, to RISD and in, um, in Providence to, to study painting. But I, in the end, I, I chose not to because I, 
didn't want to, I had, I had many other interests and I didn't want to limit myself to, to only art at that time. So that's how, how I wound up at the University of Chicago. U of Chicago is where you studied undergrad. What did you study there? Well, you know, they don't have an architecture school. And to be honest with you, I, I hadn't really considered becoming an architect at that time. So my degree is in literature and philosophy. So I, I, um, I was um, literature I, and philosophy is more stable than art. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got into, I got into literature and philosophy basically because there's a good dime to be made in that racket. And, um, <laughs> uh, and the, the career prospects seem so robust. Yeah. Uh, in reality, I, I love, I, I love writing and always have loved writing. And I continue in my so-called spare time to serve on the editorial board of a few different design related publications now. So that, yes. that's, so, so that's fun. And I, I love, I love writing and grammar and that sort of thing, but I also, you know, I love reading and I love, I love literature and it's an extracurricular, but I'm glad I've been able to keep it in my life. Well, I'm already seeing the foundation of a really strong, sorry to use architecture uh, metaphors, but the foundation of a really strong structure uh, that includes, you know, the arts and of literature and philosophy, but somehow you strung those together and headed towards architecture school. What was the thinking and how did that transpire? In my early 20s, I, I, I drifted around a little bit. I, I took on a job as a journalist while I kind of figured out what I wanted to do next. I, that's when I originally went to Japan to, um, uh, to live for a year uh, right, after, right after I graduated from the University of Chicago. Okay, let's talk about Japan. I went back there, but I, but I, I first lived there right after I graduated from college. And I mean, this is not related to what I you know, would go on to do later, but I I was a teacher in the JET program, which I don't know if you right. guys are familiar with that, but it's, yes. uh, it's a government-sponsored program. I, uh, I think it's still around. Uh, they recruit young, mostly young uh, recent graduates who don't speak Japanese to go to Japan and ostensibly to teach Japanese students how to uh, speak and read English. Really, I think what it's, what it's actually meant to do is just to create a profound sense of discomfort in both teacher and student. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> It's a strange and alienating experience, although I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I did, you know, I, and my Japanese certainly got a lot better. But it's, um, you know, the Japanese seem to excel in uh, creating mutually uncomfortable and awkward uh, situations. <laughs> and um, they, it's, it's a, it, the JET program is really a masterpiece of that. Wow. Were you in Tokyo? Of course, I requested to be placed in Tokyo. But the way that the program works most of the assignments are actually in the countryside or in the suburbs. So, yeah, I, I went up near Tokyo in a, in a prefecture called Ibaraki-ken, which is about an hour northeast of Tokyo um, on the Kanto Plains. It's a lot of semi-arid grass. There's a lot of nuclear power plants, um, a lot of, you know, low concrete structures, pachinko parlors, bosuzoku, which are, um, you know, youthful motorcycle gangs that delight in... Uh, buzzing local elementary schools with their loud motorcycles. Oh, fun. I'm fascinated by this because I actually studied Japanese for many years and it, it was my dream to be in this program. So I'm kind of living vicariously through you. And it's really interesting to hear this experience that, that I had so much wanted. Um, so I, obviously I, I have some, some questions, but you, so you just decided on a whim to do this? How did they recruit you for this? And, and what made you decide this was something you wanted to experience? Um, I mean, I guess I had just always been interested in Japanese culture and, uh, you know, in the high value that they placed on aesthetics. And full disclosure, I was not, you know, obsessed with manga or, or anime or something from an early age. I wasn't one of those people. I, I, I don't... I really don't know my way around Dragon Ball Z or Pokemon. Oh, I don't either. <laughs> um, so it wasn't about that. It was more. It was more that I was. I was just interested in Japanese culture and 
I'd read some, you know, I'd read some, some Japanese books by that point and not in Japanese or anything, but I, you know, I already had, had been dabbling in Japanese literature, reading Japanese literature, and I was just interested in it. And also I had a slightly older friend who had done it for three years. His Japanese is excellent. He had studied it in college. He went on the JET program for three years and became completely fluent. He lives in Chicago, but he works for a Japanese company and, you know, spends most of his days dealing with Japanese executives in Japanese. And so he was, you know, he obviously had very high, um, very positive things to say about the program. And he influenced my, my decision to, to apply. And I applied together with a, one of my very best friends from college and we were both accepted, but we were placed in very different geographic regions. I was near Tokyo and he was near Osaka. So mm-hmm. that, that was, so it would have been nice if we'd been nearer to each other just for, you know, camaraderie and friendship. But it was kind of nice because it gave us both an excuse to go to the others, you know, the other's region. Mm-hmm. And they're so different, you know, Osaka is so different from, from Tokyo. Yeah. Did you do any other traveling around the country while you were there? Oh yeah, a ton. I mean, one of the nice things about the JET program is that it's not especially demanding on your time if you're one of the, the junior teachers as I was. So I had a, I had a lot of free time and a lot of vacation time. You know, you're, you're pretty well paid uh, considering the, you know, considering your responsibilities. So I tried to make the most of it. I mean, for one thing, I read all of the, you know, difficult novels I didn't have time to read while I was in, while I was in college. But, you know, I also, I also traveled around a lot. I went to Hokkaido, I went to Kyushu, I went to, um, you know, the Sea of Japan. I, I, I got to travel around quite a bit, both alone and, and with, my, um, with my buddy Andrew, who was there at the time, too. But that it, is a, it is still a time in my life where I probably did the most solo traveling. And I also traveled to other countries, too, while I was there. I went to, um, to Hong Kong in China. I went to Thailand and back to the Philippines briefly. And so, you know, when you're, when you're that age... I don't know about you guys, but I, I had a lot of wanderlust and really wanted to see see as much of Southeast Asia as I could. And I made a decent dent in it, I guess. I mean, you're like a sponge just soaking up all this cultural influence. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it all has like burned a pretty deep impression on your brain. I, I, would, I would say so. I mean, you know, also the experience, like I said, it, it is it is you know rife with uh, the, the, the particular flavor of absurdity that comes along with culture shock. And yeah. I have, you know, dozens of hilarious stories I could tell you about. Uh, you got to tell us at least one. <laughs> okay. What's well, a good one? I guess, I guess one that kind of set the tone for my experience. One of the things that, that, that's so particular about Japan is that, um, or so peculiar about Japan is that they, they idolize and fetishize much of, much of Western culture. But when you encounter it again in Japan as a Westerner, it's been refracted through a very particular Japanese lens mm-hmm. and, and, and in, and in that refraction rendered almost totally unrecognizable. So just to give you an example of that kind of foreignness, I, I, I remember when I first arrived, you know, my, my Japanese was very poor, both written and spoken. And I, I went into a convenience store, you know, which there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of them in, in any Japanese midsize city. And, you know, you never expect that you'll be visiting a convenience store two, three, four times a day right. until you're actually living in Japan. But it's a big, it's a big part of urban life there. Yeah. And I can remember going into one and, and having already spent a few days after my arrival in Japan, fumbling my way ham-fistedly through, through, through menus at various restaurants and usually winding up with something unexpected or borderline inedible. I went into a convenience store with, uh, with the intention of just buying, buying something that I could see first and so that I knew what to expect. So I approached a rack of snacks, and there was what looked to be a very innocuous you know, jelly donut. It was plainly a jelly donut. It was the size and shape of the jelly donut and covered in a light dusting of powdered sugar. It was individually wrapped some sort of graphic on the packaging that I ignored at the time, but I, I paid for it and opened it and was looking forward to taking a bite of a, you know, familiar taste of home 
the good old American jelly donut. And when I bit into it, of course, it was brimming with small shrimp or krill. (laughs) (laughs) That is classic. It's sort of like a cream corn sauce. Uh, So wasn't what I had been expecting. I have had a similar experience. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of a metaphor for what what being new to Japan was was like. Well, there's also nothing worse than when you're expecting something sweet and like a dessert and you get fish taste. Right, instead. you get a taste of the sea. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like licking the underside of a boat. Yeah. So that was, uh, that's, that's one of many stories. I mean, and that wasn't even when I was working as an architect there, which was, which was much more profoundly absurd and strange. After you sort of knocked around a bit, did your traveling around Southeast Asia, what happened then? I really missed doing something creative and, and making things, and I missed the visual arts. And, you know, I had been, been writing for a living, and, and I wanted to... Um, I, knew, I knew that I needed to get back into doing something that was more actively creative. And, you know, I, I, I briefly, briefly considered getting an MFA um, in, again, in, you know, in painting. But architecture seemed like a, a, a nice synthesis of a lot of things I was interested in. You know, analysis, aesthetics, the visual arts, communication, problem solving. So, you know, I began to investigate architecture school a little more seriously. And before I knew it, I was, you know, I was applying to applying to a few programs. UT Austin is where you studied architecture. Yes, that's right. Did you choose that because of UT Austin? Did you choose it because of Austin? Was it close to San Antonio where your family was? It was a little bit of all of those things. And also, um, it's a great program and they have a uh, and they have excellent facilities. It's three buildings, three or four buildings on the campus of UT, and they're and they're they're beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful library, and and all of the facilities that I saw seemed really top notch. And I and I and the pedagogy appealed to me. It's a it's a broad building based pedagogy with an emphasis on drawing and hand drawing. And, and so in that respect, it's a little bit like Yale. I didn't realize at the time while I was applying in my mid twenties, you know, or early twenties, I guess how how profoundly different the pedagogy is at, at, at many of the different program. So mm. I, you know, if I could do it again, I would, I would look more closely at, at how, um, how the various programs differ because, you know, if you go to Columbia, for instance, or Pratt, um, you're going to be immersed in the latest three rendering software from day one, you know, and if you wind up at a place like UT or Yale, it is more, it is much more about understanding construction systems. And I mean, not to say that it's a trade school or something, but it's, um, but there, I think there's more of an emphasis on actual tectonics and the, and the built environment rather than just pure sort of speculative form making like you might find at some other programs. Yeah, gotcha. You know, or a program like Princeton, which is very, very theory based, which also would have really appealed to me had I um, had I investigated it better. But now now having a few friends uh, who've gone to Princeton, I think that's also an excellent program that probably would have been a very good fit for me also. But uh, aside from aside from the pedagogy, another thing was I just wanted to, um, you know, the University of Chicago had been extremely monastic. And uh, I mean, and I, got a, I feel like I got a great education there. I have absolutely no regrets about about attending uh, UFC. I think it's an absolutely fantastic school and I'm very glad I went there. But Chicago is a very cold place and, uh, and UChicago is a very serious, serious school. And so UT, uh, UT Austin, in addition to being near my family and where I grew up, it just seemed like a nice place to live for a few years as a student. So I know that's not the, I know that's not the most serious answer I could give, but it definitely did influence my decision to go there. And Austin is a very cool city. There's a oh, lot yeah. going on there culturally and and musically and, and artistically. It feels very different than the rest of Texas. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was a great it was a great place to go to school for a few years. I don't I don't know if I could. I mean, I have a few friends from school who've settled there and they seem to have really nice lives. I don't know if I could if I would want to live there now. But um, but I, I definitely enjoy going back and visiting. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So after school, were you thinking, okay, I'm going to start my own firm or I'm going to go work for a firm? Your bio says you worked at a couple of different firms. So how did those come about? What were those experiences like? Well, I worked in Japan while I was still in grad school. I basically took a semester off. I, I was able to I was able to wrangle some funding from from school to do it. I went and worked for a firm in, in Kyoto for, you know, for a little while. And that was a that was a really fun experience. I mean it was um again it was it was also those were also some of the most stressful days I can remember in my entire life just because of work culture. Um, yeah, I am fascinated by that too. I was going to ask you about that. Because, well, first of all, how did you get that job? The architect who I worked for, Waro Kishi is his name. He came and lectured at, at UT Austin. And um, yeah, I saw the lecture. I was, in, I was impressed by him, impressed by his work, which is, which is very different from um, other, what other Japanese architects is his age have, have done. I mean, he, he's kind of the Craig Elwood of Japan. You know, he, he works in a very, Miesian way. And his, you know, his, his buildings are very much about steel and glass, but he also takes advantage of the, of the access that he has to the most talented and skilled Japanese traditional artisans. Um, his, his offices in Kyoto, many of his projects involve these extremely well, you know, well-crafted, beautiful, traditional Japanese elements, which, which are beautiful. And to see that, you know, and to see that interwoven with this very rigorous Miesian high modernism, at the proportion and scale of the typical Japanese house, that was just very appealing to me. And, and it seems like a very unique practice. I think it's an under-recognized practice. Um, it's a small office. I mean, it's only, it's only four people. And so with the university's help, I approached him and I put together a resume in Japanese. And, you know, my Japanese was, was okay from having been on the JET program, but it was, you know, it was pretty limited. But so when I arrived, they put me right to work. And I think that they, you know, they weren't going to take... They weren't going to take no for an answer. I mean, they just expected that I was totally fluent and treated me that way. So I had a really steep uh, learning curve I had to overcome. In addition to all of the weird office dynamics and politics, which I was thrown thrown into in media res. I can't imagine that because I, I'm thinking like, okay, architecture in and of itself, you're slightly new to, to being an architect. So you're thrown into this situation where you're in a foreign country. I mean, you've been there before, you know a little bit of the language, and now you have to learn how to do everything in another language. It's, it's almost like a sink or swim situation. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it was definitely a, a real um, mind melter. You know, I mean, I, I knew the rudiments of some of the, some of the key you know, drafting programs that we use in architecture. But, but if then, then, of course, you get to Japan, and not only is the keyboard not in English, but all of the shortcut keys that you've come to depend on are totally different. Plus their way of living and their architecture is totally different too than what we have here. So it's almost like learning a, a new way of approaching architecture. 
Yeah, I mean, and not only that, but also the relationship between the architect and the general contractor is different. The relationship between the architect and the various tradespeople and, and craftsmen is, is, is new and, and different. And also the way a job site is managed is different. So yeah. one thing I will say, it was somewhat disappointing to come back from Japan and see you know, see what passes for organization and cleanliness on an American job site. <laughs> oh, yes, man. <laughs> because, you know, in Japan, they, they just, they really do it right. The foreman has a meeting with his, you know, with his, with his workers at the beginning of the day, and they're all wearing little color-coded hard hats, and they all stand in a line and accept instruction, and then uh, the work is extremely organized, and then at the end of the day, it's extremely, you could, you could like, eat off the floor of the job site, you know, it's, and that's every day. So it's, it's a very different, at least the jobs I worked on. And admittedly, you know, this guy, the firm that I was working for, this architect, he, he gets pretty good commission. So I think that, I don't know if all jobs are like that, but the ones I saw were really, you know, impeccably managed and, and organized. So, so then to come back to the general kind of chaos that passes for a job site in, uh, in the States, it was a little bit of a wake up call. Yeah, I bet. How long were you in Japan? About nine months. And then what happened? Was it just a, a it was a nine month contract? Yeah, it was just like a, it was like a nine month internship, you know, for lack of a better word. And, and I did everything. I mean, I, I helped with drafting and design and model making, but I also, you know, I also kept the office clean. And, and, and one thing, one, uh, one especially challenging thing that they gave me to do was right when I landed, they were like, oh, well, you know, we'd like you to translate a lot of his writings because he was also an academic, prominent academic. And they said, we'd like you to translate a lot of his writings into English. Um, his writing is, is difficult and abstruse and obscure, even for Japanese speakers. So we'd like to see them by five o'clock. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Oh, so, so that was, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was a little tough. So I had to, I had to avail myself of this poor, um, extremely harried and overworked junior architect who, who I was assisting most, most actively in the office. He spoke fluent English because he had gone to Mario Bota's Academy in Lugano for architecture. So he spoke not only Japanese, but also English and Italian. And, um, and then he worked at David Adjaye's office in London afterwards. So that's, and that's really where he had cultivated his English. So strangely enough, he spoke English with like a kind of like a thick, like rugged, like South London accent, which was, uh, which just sort of added to the overall kind of tenor of strangeness because, you know, I'm desperately seeking this guy's advice about how to translate these, these, you know, dense academic articles. And he'd be like, look, Kevin, right, like, the way you got to think about it is, and he's like a little, little Japanese guy, you know, it's like, when he says tectonic expression, right, what he's really trying to get at is in his work, you know, so it was very, um, it was very strange. And it was a very small, it was a very small, quiet office. That was another thing, extremely, with everyone focused in an extremely intense way on his or her work. There were only three people, me, well, there was the junior guy, there was me, and then there were these two other full-time employees two young architects, each of whom excelled in, in executing one of the principal architect styles because he does these small jewel, jewel-like houses. And then he also does these, you know, larger mixed use sort of programs. And each one of these two architects were very good at one of those two styles. It seemed to me, I mean, with my limited understanding of the emotional dynamic in the office, it seemed they had tremendous personal enmity for each other. So they were, you know, they, they, <laughs> they didn't seem to get along at all. So there was a lot of tension in the office. <laughs> in general, but it was a great experience um, in, in, in many ways. I'm sure it stretched you wide open. I mean, you probably really pushed yourself to the edges of what you thought you were capable of. Yes. Which is super cool. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and really embarrassed myself many, many times along the way. But uh, here I am. <laughs> With a lot of great stories. Yeah, yeah. Many that I probably should not share here. But, uh, but uh, maybe sometime <laughs> if we meet in person, I'll tell them to you over a beer. Yes. 
Absolutely. Yes. All right. So then after nine months, you come back to the state. I came back and I finished school and I, you know, I came to New York and interviewed during my final semester and I accepted a job for a firm called Leroy Street Studio, which is uh, a firm that specializes mostly in high-end residential work, although they do other program types also. And I had a great experience there. They were um, great mentors and they do really, really thoughtful, interesting work. And and I, um, I really enjoyed the time, the time that I spent there. And then eventually I was approached sort of out of the blue to design a boutique on the Lower East Side called Miriam and Sears a Day, which is a, it's, a, it's primarily a women's fashion boutique. I, I began to design that project in, at night and um, at lunch and that sort of thing. And then that project eventually led to other projects. Uh, I had enough work that I, I started Space Exploration. Space Exploration is your own studio. Yes. How big are you guys? There's five of us. There's me and a, a project manager and two junior designers and a, a marketing a, a manager. Please tell me your job sites are as clean and tidy as those Japanese ones. <laughs> I wish we had full control over that. <laughs> I want color-coded hard hats. I, I want them too. I mean, I uh, want little brooms everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all wearing color-coded hats in the office right now. <laughs> okay, okay. So was was doing your own studio? Was that always a, a goal, a dream of yours? Well, I think it was. I had no idea that it would happen so so fast. I mean, and I, I had no idea how to go about doing it. I mean, it just sort of happened organically. I'd be lying if I said that it, you know, that there wasn't some turbulence along the way. I mean, but um, you know, like C.S. Lewis says, you know, experiences. It's a it's a hard master, but but by God, do you learn? That's that's what happened to me. I mean, I, I really think I wasn't ready to go out on my own. I just made the leap almost out of necessity. I mean, it was terrifying and extremely stressful, but but it was also extremely gratifying in a way that working for other people had not been. And I mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't expect that. I was delighted to find that it, it's so it's how satisfying it is to be able to control a project with my you know my own vision. It was probably the greatest surprise of my adult life. How long ago was it that you started your firm? How long have you been doing it? Uh, I mean, you know, like I said, it, it was kind of a gra- it was kind of a gradual process. So it wasn't like I, I left my you know I left my job in an, or- an established firm and then you know rented this space right. and bought five computers and hung up a shingle. It was very it was very organic and gradual. So I mean, I think I took on that first project about eight years ago. I mean, I, I'd say that really the firm is if I had really dated, I would say it's probably about five years five years old of really doing it full time and built and trying to build it and grow it into something, you know, like what it's become today. And, and I hope that this is only the beginning. How would you characterize the firm? I mean, you do a lot of high end residential and commercial shop and restaurant spaces, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, those are sort of the program types that we have the most experience with at the moment. You know, the, the boutique was the first thing. And then that led to a, that led to a great residential job with, with, with a pair of people who are among our very favorite repeat clients. They were extremely kind people, open-minded, They've got great taste. They've actually been a great asset to to the development of this firm. And that's, I mean, it really is just a testament to the importance of having great clients and like-minded clients. They certainly helped us a lot through, throughout the years, just in, in terms of the opportunity they've given us to, to express ourselves and also to, to, to help them and work with them. And at the moment, our work is primarily residential work with some restaurants and occasionally a boutique or another program type thrown in the mix I'd love to try my hand at other program types. You know, that's sort of a goal for the future. But at the moment, we definitely have our hands full with what we've been doing for the last few years. It's intricate. It's it's constantly challenging and gratifying. I want to give you kudos, too, on naming your firm Space Exploration instead of something like Greenberg and Greenberg Partners or something like that, because it feels fresh and new and approachable. You know, I work with a lot of architects for Design Milk, and I get so many dry things coming in and really difficult descriptions. And I, I just give you 
props for for bringing architecture forward. Well, I like it because it also implies that you're all wearing um, astronaut suits <laughs> <laughs> and, and building rocket ships in there. I think it does do that, too. I mean, I like of course, I like the play the play on words, but I also uh-huh. like the fact that it makes people think of some sort of like serious aeronautic setting. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, in 10 years, you might be building, designing something for people who live on Mars. <laughs> Well, you know, we call it SpaceX for short. And of course, uh, of course, it was with Chagrin that we learned that now there's a much larger, more established company that actually is called SpaceX. And so it gives people even yeah. more reason to confuse us with other uh, other firms. And also, you know, it, it, our, our search engine optimization takes that much more of a hit now because of that. But um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I love the name and I'm, uh, I, 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 I definitely from the beginning wanted to avoid calling it like KG Studio or like. You know, Greenberg Architect or something like that, because it just—I just wanted it to be something more interesting and buildings and more. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, or or I also wanted to avoid the trend that seemed to flourish in the '90s of calling it like just the most the most like banal bureaucratic thing you could think of, like like Office for Architecture or like Office of Unspecified Services or you know that, <laughs> you know that that sort of thing. So <laughs> I wanted people to be able to find us on Google if they try. I just want to make them try a little harder. <laughs> people love well, you doing know what? extra searches on google <laughs> but it's a it's a fun extra search because you're you're leading us on a journey through all of the actual space exploration all of the nasa stuff right maybe you actually to get you. to see some cool planets on the way to our website <laughs> yeah right. it's uh, really nice that's the hope so what have been your favorite projects so far can you describe something that you feel really connected to and very proud of sure i mean i think you know like i said we, we've been very lucky to have Excellent clients that we've worked with. And so I really believe that architecture is about relationships and I, and I, and I think it's about collaboration, absolutely about working with other people, much more so than trying to create some single-handedly sculpt some, some vision that's a product of my own ego out of raw clay. I mean, that's, I think that people might think that about architects, but that's really not how we practice it. I mean, I think it's much more about dialogue and communication. So our, the best projects, I think, have been the result of the best dialogue and the best com- communication and collaboration with, with clients who we hold dear. So I would say our Schoolhouse Loft project, which was an early project, I, I hold that project dear just because it was an early chance for me to be able to begin to explore some of the, some of the aesthetics and some of the tropes and styles that come to think of about as as being some of the trademarks or hallmarks of space exploration, although I never want us to be pigeonholed into a particular style, but I discovered some of those during the, that project, the schoolhouse loft, and also just the, the history of the building and uh, the raw, the raw space. It's an amazing spatial envelope that apartment. So, so we had a, we had a lot to work with and the clients are, are great and have since become good friends. And so I think that's, that's a, that's a favorite. I think that Walters, which is a restaurant we did in, in Fort Greene, that is a, that's a favorite. That's one with which I feel a lot of emotional connection. You can really get a sense when you walk into that space that people are enjoying themselves and they're enjoying, they're enjoying the, the design details that you labored over for so long. And people might actually notice them, and even if they don't they still, those details still contribute to the overall experience they're having. So I take a lot of um, satisfaction in that, in that project. And also in a project that is, is new, which is an extension of Walters and owned by the same people. And it's called Karasu. It's a Japanese style izakaya. It's a secret place that's hidden in the back of Walters and you enter it through Walters, but the design language is very different. The cuisine is very different. And for me, of course, it was a dream because having lived and worked in Japan, it gave me a chance finally to employ some of the some of the tropes or ideas or proportions 
that I had learned about our experience in Japan in an unbridled way for the, for the first time. Yeah, it's fun when it starts to all make sense like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the fun thing about a restaurant is you can really turn the volume up to 11. I mean, residential design has to be pretty, re- good residential design is usually pretty restrained, I think. Mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, in a restaurant, you can, you can be a lot more expressive. So being able to do that with some Japanese design ideas, not that we wanted it to feel explicitly Japanese. We wanted it to feel sort of more like an understated, refined, sophisticated, mid-century modern place, but with some nods to a Japanese aesthetic sensibility. So we, we looked closely at um, the lounge at the Okura Hotel in Tokyo, which was recently demolished, unfortunately. We watched some of the early color films of uh, Yasujiro Ozu to inform the design, but we wanted it to feel more like a mid-century space with, uh, with kind of a Japanese undercurrent. Are those clues to your creative process? Do you watch films and study literature and look at paintings and all of your background, which is, you know, literature and painting and philosophy? Does that all come into your creative process? Absolutely. I mean, I think that my strongest ideas and maybe some of some of our strongest ideas, and I try to I try to encourage the other people at Space Exploration and also our clients to look to look outside, far outside the discipline of architecture or interior design or home design for inspiration. I think that some of our best ideas have come from literature or painting or film or cooking or automotive design or what have you. You know, I think, I think there's great inspiration to be had almost anywhere. Because, you know, there's a tendency, I think, in, in, in fields like this to put blinders on and become kind of obsessed with what your peers or colleagues are doing and what's quote-unquote trending. I like to try to cast a wider net. And in terms of working with your office and also with clients, does everybody have their own specific job or do you work all together? How does that happen? Well, I mean, just, just for the sake of efficiency, there are certainly roles in the office and things that different people do just to sort of keep, uh, keep the workflow efficient. The team on a project goes well beyond us at Space Exploration. It extends to the general contractor, uh, the, the, tra- the different trades people who are involved, be they infrastructural trades people like plumbers or electricians or more specialty trades, people like the fine metal worker or a mill worker, um, all of those voices to end. And of course the client also plays a, a tremendous, a tremendous role in shaping the outcome of the project. So, you know, I, I think of architecture as more like a form of, it's almost like what a midwife does. You're trying to usher this thing into the world amidst a lot of noise and chaos. And you're trying to coordinate with a lot of different people who have diverse and sometimes not corresponding agendas. You really have to learn the players and communicate with them individually and then find a way to bridge certain divides and bring the thing together in concert um, to create a successful project. So, I mean, I absolutely think that what we do is is more collaborative than anything uh, individual. I mean, and, and of course, you know, that means you have to temper your expectations about the final outcome because with so many different people contributing, the outcome is going, it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict the precise outcome. And, and I think that a part of not going crazy working in this field is learning to, to be excited and it's about those surprises that, that happen along the way and that are the result of, of someone else's interpretation of the project and its arc and trajectory. And I, I think mo- most of the time we're lucky in that, in that the people we work with are, are talented and are, are, are enthusiastic about the project. So they tend to make uh, contributions that we might not have been able to make ourselves and might not even have ever thought of. It seems like you're pretty laid back about it too. You know, uh, I'm I'm so type A. I'm like kind of a control freak. Do you have moments where you're like that or are you just like it's it's going to end up not being exactly what I wanted it to be and I'm totally okay with that? I, I think that what it boils down to for me is trying not to get attached to any kind of particular outcome 
too soon and letting letting an organic process take shape. Of course, I mean, I'm extremely type A and controlling about certain things. And and there, there will, I mean, not only not only in the design, but also in the in the, um, the project management process, which is a huge part of what we do, obviously. And and I want to, you know, and a lot of times you have to you have to wrangle people who might not see eye to eye to you or might not take a deadline as seriously as you do or something like that, which is, you know, it's less fun to talk about. But, um, but, but so in those situations, you absolutely, you know, absolutely cannot be laid back about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, especially when you're, you know, when you're answering to a, to a client who has a lot at stake in terms of time and money, you absolutely want to make sure that, um, that they, that they stay happy because I think that makes a huge difference in the outcome of the, of the project. Just to draw the parallel to your midwifery approach, you have to be absolutely fundamentally rigid about certain health aspects, right? right <laughs> in terms right. of ensuring the health of the project, right. but that baby's going to come out and have its own personality. That's right. And it might have, it might have blonde hair. It might have brown hair. You, know, you, yeah. you don't know. And, and I think that I try to get a pretty good general sense of what, you know, what, how, how I want the project to feel more than exactly how I want it to look, you know, along the way you discover certain details or products or materials that you want to implement. And maybe, you know, I mean, I can't say I don't obsess over those things because I absolutely do. And of course the way that those things are, are rendered or executed in the end, they make the difference between a, a so-so project and an exceptional project. So when push comes to shove and the work's actually being done, I want to make sure that it's done to, you know, to a very high standard of quality. I love what you said about how a space makes you feel versus worrying about how it ends up looking in the end. I think that's a very artistic approach to the project. And I wonder like if you hadn't had that artistic background, if you would also not feel that way. I think that's true. I mean, you know, I, I think that there's a notion that architects are supremely rational and orderly and mathematical and anal and that their world is dominated by that outlook and they make all their decisions according to some rigid, maybe utopian logic, even, you know, what to have for lunch. And maybe that's true for some people, but I don't think my brain has worked like that or, or ever will. I mean, I think, I think my brain functions more like an artist. I'm, 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 I'm unabashed about the fact that I'm, I'm ruled by emotion um, and the union way of interpreting the world and creating meaning appeals to me more than anything that came out of the enlightenment, I would say. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in echoes and murk and ghosts, you know, uh, but if any clients or potential future clients are listening, that's, that's not how we run our design practice. <laughs> but, but I will admit, I, I don't consider myself a, like a natural architect. I just think it's a type of way of looking at the world, really. Yeah. And it sounds like in addition to your artistic sensitivity, there's a, there's a real empathy involved in the way you design, because if you're worried about how the client is going to feel, that's inherently empathetic and ultimately more important, I think, than how it looks, because then that feeling can be maintained and that also maintains the looks. Right. And so much of what we do, too, is interpretive. I mean, I think that you know, you have a client who comes to you, they have a, they have a vision, they probably cannot articulate it. I mean, and that's why, that's why they turn to most of the time at the beginning of the design process, clients turn to precedent images that they find on the internet or, or in magazines. That's why programs like Pinterest and how has it become so useful for us in the profession, because it's a tidy way for your client to organize, to show you some things they like or some things that they might be thinking about that they can't necessarily give voice to. So a lot, I think a lot of what we do is trying to interpret what the client sees in his or her own head, but cannot share with you, you know, cannot articulate. So, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, you, you create a vision of what you think that's like, and you use various, you know, visualization tools to try to show the client how you're interpreting their, their desire or their ambition. And even if they approve those, those visualizations or they seem to really like them, 
the project takes all kinds of twists and turns. And it might be that we, we, this is why we order mock-ups of certain intricate or expensive elements, because you might get the thing that you had in mind. You think the client loves unreservedly based on a rendering or a precedent image to the site and they, they, they no longer like it. So then you have to adjust and that's how the project works. So I think the way that I imagine a project is going to come out at the beginning is almost never the way that it looks or the way that it actually comes out at the end. I mean, it's, I mean, the, hopefully the essence of it is still there. The, I definitely want the spirit to still be there, but the, the actual appearance of the project, it almost always changes sometimes dramatically from, from the first concept sketches to the actual, you know, to the actual architectural photographs at the end. So let's talk about you personally. You're Kevin Greenberg. Yeah. Um, okay. Not necessarily space exploration, but you seem like a pretty well-adjusted guy. <laughs> Thanks. I'll tell my therapist you said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, are you in therapy? Are you, are, is there a direction you're pushing yourself in, in terms of self-improvement, in terms of becoming a better Kevin Greenberg? You mean besides making it to the gym at least three days a week and calling my parents more often? Um, yeah, maybe in addition to those, but those are good ones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'm always trying to find fresh ways to approach problems, design problems and making room in my brain for solutions that might seem a little off kilter or odd or wrong in some way when they first appear. So how do you make room in your brain? Well, I guess it's just about trying to be gentle with self-criticism or not calling every idea that seems a little homely at first, because sometimes the best ideas start off as, a, as a, the slightest, most timid whisper and if you actually give them a little space or don't just extinguish them immediately, they can make a big impact on the outcome of the project or maybe even, maybe even drive the, the grammar or the, or the logic that informs the project. Um, so I think that I want to always keep an open mind. I don't, want to, I don't want to ever allow my creative process or my way of thinking about what I do or a particular program type or, or even a particular project. I don't, I don't want it to ever ossify or become rigid in some way. I want to always keep an open mind. I, I want to allow myself to be surprised by solutions that might seem unlikely. And I, I think, I think a lot of that has to do with just establishing a kind of a work-life balance and being relaxed and continuing to travel and broaden my experience of the world at large. And I, I also would like to seek to make more art for myself just for pleasure. I think it's a nice escape from the practical side of, of the creative process of, of architecture. I mean, when I'm creating for space exploration, it mostly has some endpoint in mind, or it's it's for some greater purpose. So I really enjoy the purposelessness of art and the playful aspect of it, and I would like to always make room in my life for that type of experimentation and purposelessness in, in creative expression. What kind of stuff do you paint? You know, growing up, it was always figurative—not formal portraits, but I like that kind of. Um, I love anatomy and, and expression, you know, human expressions and the, the types of composition that that type of work lends itself to. People, plants, animals. I also, I mean, when I travel, I always try to bring a sketchbook and try to make a point to actually draw the places where I go. Because I think that, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a cliche from school, but it's true. I mean, I think the best way to, to understand something is to draw it. So, so I, I always try to make time. If I'm visiting a new place, I'll try to sit down and, and just sketch for a little while to try to understand the place a little better. Are there any bad habits you're trying to break? Are there any cycles passed down from older generations that you're trying not to repeat? I don't know about older generations. I mean, that's a, it's a tall order for me to fix their mistakes. I think a big part of what we have to do, it's not the sexiest part of what we have to do, but I think disappointment management is really a key architectural skill. And I think because, you know, you have so many clients who are very optimistic and 
who might be, you know, might occasionally be a little naive about what the process entails and how much it will cost and how, how long it will take. And um, I'm constant, constitutionally disposed to pleasing people and making people happy. So it's tough for me to, to kill their buzz, but I'm trying to instill in myself the notion that the buzz must be killed as early and as often <laughs> as it needs to be, because um, because the, the sooner you get people's expectations in line with what actually goes on into the making of a construction process, the cost, the chaos, the time, the occasional you know irrational, unexpected hiccups, that sort of thing, the the, the, the smoother it will go. Do you have children? Not yet. Oh, I was going to, cause I was going to say, I, I do disappointment management with my four and a half year old. And basically it's the, the, Oh, you, you know, you can't have that toy. I know, honey, I know you really wanted it, but remember we're going to get ice cream after dinner tonight. Right. So right. it's kind of like you, yeah, you tell them a negative, but you try to show them something they can look forward to to take their attention off of the negative. Thing. Absolutely. And I, I think, and I think when I was just starting out, I, I think I had just sort of an innate tendency to downplay the less pleasant parts of the project management process. And now I really try to, I try to highlight them as soon as possible, just so the client knows that we understand what's going on and so that they know what to expect and their expectations are tempered and it's just a smoother project path for us that way. Yeah. You kind of set them up so that their expectations are managed. It's like dating. You, yeah. You don't want to give the, a false impression of what this is going to be like. Yes, I have a gluten allergy. Yes, it will be <laughs> annoying every time we go out to eat. Yes. yes, I have an adventurous palate. That part's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's, I mean, that's, I, I feel like a lot of times it does feel like, you know, what we do transcends, you know, you, you become a marital counselor and a janitor and a uh, therapist and a psychiatrist. It's, it's, crazy. it's crazy all the roles you're expected to assume. And they each have their own color-coded hard hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to need to have you go see the guy in the yellow hard hat. Now. <laughs> yeah, right. He's going to help you through this next phase. <laughs> <laughs> so are there things that clients ask you for or want that you're just like, oh, not another one of these kind of clients or not? I don't I can't draw another, you know, bay window or <laughs> I don't I'm nothing against bay windows. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think every architect probably has a different answer to this. I, I mean, I think that probably. You know, there's two, there's two different um, prongs, prongs to this answer. I mean, the first prong is, you know, certain, certain clients will, or sometimes clients will ask for something that, that just betrays how little they understand about the process building in New York or, you know, statics or structure or, you know, physics in general, you'll get, you'll frequently get asked like, Oh, can we put, can we put a window here? You know, and, and, uh, You can't, you can't put a window there. Sorry. Uh, so although we'd like to, but, um, you know, if you're standing in the middle of an apartment building in New York, they're probably not going to lay you all to the facade that way. Um, so, so we have, so that we get those kinds of questions and I don't know if those exactly give me the shivers, but they do, they do make my blood run a little bit cold. I get the fantods a little bit because then you realize that the person you're working with, that you, you need to do a better job of educating them about, about what they can realistically expect, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the other the other thing uh, is, you know, frequently we get asked for things that um, stylistically either don't work with the job or, you know, are just a little played out, uh, for lack of a better word. You know, sometimes we get asked for stylistic things that were maybe cool um, a little while ago, but we, to us, it's kind of a red flag. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to put any Edison bulbs in our projects, for instance. <laughs> uh, not to be too, not to be too specific about an example, but but that you know there there are there are things like that where. You want to you want to let the client know in a subtle way that they're either asking for something that's dangerous or impossible 
or a little tacky. Um. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you, you, it's your project and, and you're going to be, you know, sharing that you did this project. So it's kind of almost like you want to do something that reflects your personal or your firm style in some way or another. Ultimately it is their home. So we don't want to, we don't want to like voice, you know, some uh, monolithic vision on them that they hate just because we're looking forward to photographing it. You know, that's, that's like the worst possible approach. So, you know, if there's somebody who's really adamant about doing something that we don't like very much, we'll of course let them have it. I mean, they're going to experience it every day and we're going to, we're only going to experience it until we leave the, you know, leave the site after the punch list is complete. So, you know, if they, if they really want that pink Corinthian column, then they can have it. And we just won't photograph that room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, if, if they love that pink Corinthian column and it's going to bring them joy, it's your duty to bring it to them. Absolutely. It's, it is their, it's still their project and you know, we are still their servants in a way. (laughs) I was going to ask you if you think that the architect's brain functions differently than everybody else's brain. Yeah, I mean, I think that this maybe just cuts back a little bit to what I was saying before about how there is this notion that architects are super rational and mathematical. I think my brain doesn't work like that. I mean, I, I don't consider myself to be a natural architect. Maybe they're out there. I don't know. Well, I, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I was going to ask you about that. But now that we've had this had this conversation and I've learned so much about your right and left brain, um, which somehow you've managed to cultivate both sides of your brain and bring it together. I will say, though, that, um, you know, natural architects aside, I mean, I've certainly met people who project that persona, but you can pretty quickly tell that behind the white glasses and the hot pink socks, they're probably the least natural of all, you know, but I think I think probably the most natural architect is someone who has who has to solve problems out of necessity or to save money or for survival and for whom that instinct is just deep in their bones, like someone like a homesteader or a farmer or that type of person. And I don't know if that person really exists as a big population these days, but despite having fetishized by well-heeled, educated people who, you know, receive formal training. But I will admit that since I, I really made architecture and design a big part of my life, my brain has changed in ways that I probably never could have anticipated. I mean, obviously our brains are always changing. There's a lot of cellular turnover throughout our lives. But I guess I've rewired my brain to notice bad design now more than I did when I was younger or before I spent so much time working in this field. There's a lot of it out there, too. Mm. (laughs) I guess mostly that's a good thing because it helps me to solve the problems that frequently arise in my own work and maybe avoid some pitfalls. You know, discordant proportions, sloppy detailing, cheap or gaudy materials. I mean, they jump out at me now the same way that typos and usage errors do in poorly composed emails. And I notice those things more in the world at large during my daily life than I did when I was younger. So basically, I would say the main difference between the way my brain works now and the way it worked when I was, say, in my early 20s is that there's a much higher chance now that my day will be ruined by a baseboard or a drain pipe. <laughs> Mine too. Oh my God. The complaints I have. Uh. So that's the biggest change in my brain. Anyway, uh, I can't speak for all those other architect, architects out there. They may see the world in a different way. What about big picture goals for the studio or for you? I think for me, I mean, I just want to continue to, to try to pr- practice responsible design. I mean, architecture to me anyway, is deeply, deeply satisfying and it's gratifying. You know, if I could work harder to make sure the creative expression is always, if not at the forefront, then near the forefront of my practice. That's one of my goals. I just want to make sure that that, that I'm always engaged creatively in what I'm doing and that there's always a sense of challenge and and wonder and satisfaction in in what I'm doing. That's one of the reasons I chose to work in this field. I, I thought that I could probably practice it my whole life and never master it. 
completely and that it would always be new and always be different and always be challenging me to grow and change. I didn't want to spend a significant or commit a significant amount of my life to something that could be mastered easily, I guess. And then as far as the studio goes, I would love to see us get more program types, different program types. As much as I like the kind of work we do now, I'd love a, I'd love a commission to do a museum or a spiritual space um, or a spa or something like that, something larger, something more complex, or just something with a different, with a different focus. Um, maybe something with a more explicitly contemplative focus, like a sanctuary of some kind. Because I think that in those spaces, there's a different architectural imperative some of my favorite projects are spiritual spaces, um, you know, throughout history. And I, I would really love to take my, to take a crack at a project like that. I think you'd be really good at that with your empathic nature. We want to shift gears and play a fun, silly game with you. If you're, if you're up for it, Sure. we're calling it fix it. And since you're the guy who's, you know, brain has been rewired to notice bad design, <laughs> uh, since you're inherently a problem solver and I understand you have a cat. Is this yes. correct? You yes, I cat? do. We have, <laughs> my, my girlfriend, Melissa, and I have a nine-year-old Siamese named Napoleon. Okay, so all of those make you uniquely qualified to fix it. So I'm going to give you a problem. Okay, a cat-related problem. Uh, well, one of them is, yeah, I'm going to give you a problem, and you're going to give us a Kevin Greenbergian solution. Okay, I'll do my best. All right, so you have a cat. Cat scratching posts. Those those monstrosities of carpet covered cylinders and rectangles that are like sort of Memphis and all kinds of awful, like hair stuck to them and gross and they smell terrible. And yet cats love them, right? They get to rub up on them and, and something about their claws. I don't know. That's a tough problem to solve because designers of scratching posts have already tried to employ platonic geometry with mixed results. (laughs) And so, you know, I think this is one of those situations where you have to just recognize the limits of what good design can do. For, for one thing, I think that trying to impose human notions of design and aesthetics onto animals is just an exercise in hubris. I mean, so much, I think, of, you know, what we might call, quote, design for pets is really plainly for the human owners and doesn't actually benefit the animal. In fact, it might actually be depressing for the animal. You know, it's hard to say, you know, because they don't, mm-hmm. they don't express design criticism in a very cogent way often. Sometimes they do. I bet cats are cats are pretty obvious about what they don't like. It's true. I guess they do. They're good. They're, good at, they're, they're not good at constructive criticism. I guess. It's oh, true. Certainly, <laughs> certainly good at expressing disdain. Almost better than anything else. Yes. The same way that the dogs are are, are well skilled at expressing enthusiasm. Yes. But yeah, cats. Cats definitely. Uh, they definitely have the disdain thing down. I don't know. I mean, all this reminds me of like people who dress their pets up in elaborate or maybe uncomfortable costumes. You know, like a dog in a, in a little mortar board or something. Like the dog doesn't know he graduated. You know, it's more for the for the human's benefit. So I, I guess what I'm getting at in a roundabout way is maybe instead of trying to make the scratching posts more presentable, maybe the thing to do is better just to try to seed control of a room or zone in your home, if you can, to the cat. And just, just let it be a cat in there. And you just don't go in there. You know, you, that's the cat's place. And you try to avoid it or act like that part of the apartment doesn't exist. Maybe I'm dodging the question a little bit. I mean, I guess a more straightforward design solution would be you make the scratching post out of something that you, that you want shredded. So then the cat is also kind of helping you in some way. So if you could like... Oh, it's a collaborative. Yeah, yeah right. It's a collaborative exercise. And if, if you can somehow, you know, maybe you use water to bind some of your old sensitive documents into a pulp and uh, form them using a mold into a shape that the cat might like, 
then you turn them over to the cat and it shreds them for you so you don't have to go through the trouble of putting it through the shredding machine. And then at least the resultant product is, while probably still hairy, at least it's something you were trying, it's the solution you were trying to achieve anyway. Right. Well, and then you can recycle it and, and give a new one to the cat to shred. And the cat always has a purpose and your work is always getting done. That's right. Okay, next problem. Okay. Architecturally, I have always wanted a fire pole in my house because how fun is that yeah. a way to get downstairs, totally. right? Absolutely. The problem is there is no getting back upstairs way that's equally as fun. That's true. That's true. Stairs, stairs are not the most fun way to, to get no, upstairs. Stair, stairs are boring, yo. So fix it. Yeah. Elevators are also claustrophobic. Escalators are prone to breaking down. It's a tough, this is a tough, you guys are giving me some tough problems here. I mean, mm, mm-hmm. well, I mean, I'll just give an example from our, from our practice. We, we did, we have, we have tried a sort of gentle catapult type device before. <laughs> Ooh, um, I think where you're headed. Yeah. But we had a, a surprisingly difficult time convincing the department of buildings that it was safe uh, and, and, and ADA compliant, um, which was also another problem. So, so, you know, as usual, I'll just blame the city, um, and the limitations that the code uh, puts in place for not being able to get the catapult through. <laughs> I guess, I guess I, w- I would also consider maybe a system sort of like water skis. We have some motorized skis that, that span multiple treads and create a certain amount of stability. And then there's a tow rope that's maybe activated by, by a switch at the bottom and at the top of the stair. Um, so it's, it is still a stair in effect, but it's a, it's a modified stair and you get to enjoy the subversion of the, one tread after another aspect of using the stair. So mm. you're sort of um, subverting the stair um, with the skis. Oh, I like that. So, so you're going up the stair on a tow rope with the skis saying, fuck you, stair, all the way up. Yeah, fuck you, stair. Or, you know, I mean, since you said tow rope, I didn't even, I didn't even thought about, you know, the way that people choose to get up a ski slope. But, um, but that's also an interesting idea. What if we, what if we uh, put in a kind of like a chairlift type system? Because um, then, then you get a different perspective on your house. You're up higher. You feel superior to the people who are still stuck downstairs in the dining room by the credenza or whatever. Oh, exactly. Yes. And, and it's, you know, it's a little bit relaxing, the sort of gentle up and down bobbing motion of the cable. And so, <laughs> yeah, I uh, like it. I'm sure <laughs> it's cost effective, too. All yeah. right. Great solutions. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, I think all those would have to be custom engineered, which makes them all the more viable. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for playing along. That was You're great welcome. fun. Good. I enjoyed it, too. Do you have any new projects that you want to plug or that you want our listeners to know about? We have a big penthouse project in Miami. It's a duplex penthouse. It's actually the biggest apartment we've ever done. And that's, um, that's going to be a real showstopper, I hope. You know, that's a big job. So it's probably not going to be ready for a little while. But it's been fun to work in Miami because there's a real building boom down there. And, mm. and um, more so, I think, than any place in the country, Miami really places a lot of value on, on design and architecture and on many of the new developments that are going in on the beach, you'll see the architect's name, you know, in, in, in big letters, which almost never happens anywhere else. So it's been fun to work in Miami and fun to be immersed in that design culture. So there's that. And, uh, yeah, we have a couple of other really cool residential jobs too, that, would, that should be on our website and maybe getting a little press soon. I hope. Oh, great. Speaking of your website, what is it? Oh yeah. Well, so, you know, the only downside I can think of really to naming the firm space exploration was that, SpaceExploration.com was already taken by someone who legitimately works in aeronautic uh, <laughs> engineering, <laughs> which was, you know, unfortunate. So our website is SpaceExplorationDesign.com. So it's all, all one word, SpaceExplorationDesign.com. 
and it'll give you a little bit of an overview of some of our uh, some of our our completed projects. Oh, great! And you guys are on social media too. We are. Yeah, we're on Instagram. Space exploration design with underscores between the words, and then my own personal Instagram is just Kevin Greenberg. And we're also on House, and we're on Pinterest. Well. It has been a pleasure talking to you. So much fun. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you guys very much. I'm very flattered to be featured and it's been great talking with you. Next time we'll do it over a beer and you can tell us all those Japanese stories. Yeah. They're a little more, they're a little too off color, I think, for, uh, for, <laughs> for the, the podcast. Oh my God, that's my favorite kind of talk. Off color. <laughs> off color, blue, Japanese stories over a beer. I'm there. Yes. I'm so there. Well, thanks, Kevin. Take care. Man, that was fun. He is so fun. You know what makes him great to talk to is he is so damn articulate. It's that literature background, the fact that he loves writing and philosophy. He's just got this huge vocabulary in several languages that makes him so able to communicate whatever he's trying to say with so much color and texture and liveliness. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure that that feeds into his design as well, but but also his collaborations and client communications. I mean, just being able to really articulate exactly what you're getting at is a huge skill and he's so good at it. Yeah. And he's had such an interesting and unusual work experience as well as he taps into his right and his left parts of his brain. He brings all of that together to his firm, but also it seems like his his life. He has so many interests and it's so much more diverse than I had expected. So he's he's definitely blew my blew my mind. Yeah, and I'm excited that you guys got to talk about his chapters in Japan because I know you studied Asian studies and so I I mean I could feel you light up. You got really excited about that. Oh yeah, I, I <laughs> could have talked to him about that for like an hour. I, I so wanted to do that jet program. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like so much fun and what a great experience to have that. But also to be able to work at a Japanese architecture firm, I just feel like that's an architect's dream, especially someone who really loves modern modern architecture. Well, I think it's just so important, especially in your formative years as a person, but also as an architect or a creative of some sort, to really get immersed in how other people do stuff, mm-hmm. other cultures, and like he did, be forced to really execute or really push yourself to sort of the outer limits of what you think you're capable of. So being tossed into that situation where the language was new, the relationships were new, the the building vernacular was new, all of the sort of practices and protocols and office things were new. The keyboard was completely foreign. I mean, he really had to sort himself out there. And once you've done that, you've got this underlying confidence that you can go forth and do a lot of things because you'll survive, right? But it also just expands your vocabulary so hugely in terms of what's capable of being done. There's another way of doing things. You know, now he has the Japan way and the United States way at his disposal, which is a huge tool bag to pull Mm -hmm. from. I want to know more about his experience in Japan. (laughs) Maybe he'll share a beer with us in the future. You know, why don't we do um, an extra episode? Like next time we're in New York, we'll call him up and we'll bring our our portable rig and we will have a beer. We should totally do that. And get his Japan stories. And it can just be for fun or maybe we can somehow offer it as an extra. I don't know. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We hope you liked our chat with Kevin and we've got some more architects lined up. So stay tuned. 
And don't forget, subscribe to Clever on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Kevin's work at cleverpodcast.com. And connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love to hear from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.